The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us, and also great to have my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner, here as well. Uh, just a quick announcement. Uh, we're going to take a couple weeks break for the holidays, uh, but we will release a couple of special episodes uh, instead. And uh, stay tuned for those. And also want to wish everyone uh, happy holidays and a great new year. Now let's just get started. Uh, Phil, over to you. Great, thanks. I thought uh, given that it's the end of the year, this is the last time we're going to be recording something in 2021. It's forecasting season or idiot season, as I like to call it, when everybody trots out their year-end prognostications about what's going to matter and where prices are going to be and all that kind of nonsense for next year. I thought I'd revisit one of my favorite things and, and topics in that regard, which is the book and the concept Super Forecasting by Phil Tetlock and the, the project he's put together over at the Good Judgment Project. And the, it's called, the website's actually um, goodjudgmentopenjgopen.com. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff up there. So I thought I'd walk through a couple of the more interesting ones that are up there and kick off a little bit of a debate as to where those you know numbers might make sense where they might be a little bit off and i think as always the lesson that i'm taking away from this and we'll probably circle back to this with elliot segment in a minute is that uh we all me included need a lot more humility in our forecasting we need a lot more wider range of estimates the error bar needs to be a whole lot wider and uh you know that we just can't predict a lot of things that we think we can uh, it, and one of the ways that that jumps out at me was that you, some of the more prominent forecasts um, that are up on the Good Judgment Project right now are where the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield will be, uh, where the S&P 500 will be, you know, as, as, as near out as, as the end of June 2022. So I, I thought this part was particularly interesting. Where will the S&P 500 index close on June 30th, 2022? And for reference today, it's a, a little over 4,700, um, at least when I looked earlier this morning, we're recording this on December 16th. So what do you guys think? If you, if you had to put an error bar around that, you can give a few ranges. Uh, why don't you throw out a few things and I'll tell you. Or And look, by the way, with all of these, feel free to just say, I pass, I don't have a clue, or I don't even want to put a number out there. And then I'll, the point of it will be more the numbers that are coming in from the super forecasters and the general public. And, on jgopen.com but what do you guys think yeah i mean why not put myself out there for something with no skin in the game uh, i'll say exactly you know so we're talking mid-year so by mid-year we'll be at 4840 on the s&p with a low of um you know 4575 and a high of 4900 Interesting. I'll I'll just give you a point estimate, Phil, because I'm I'm that good. I don't need a range. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say uh, forty two hundred. Interesting. Well, see, that's what I find so fascinating here. I certainly don't have the first clue, and I wouldn't stake literally a single dollar on a forecast of mine in this regard. But fully half of the people responding expected a gain between now and June 30th. So 34% of respondents said we'd be somewhere between 4,700 and 5,000. And a full 16% said we'd be over 5,000, which I believe would be like a 7% increase between now and six months from now. 
which is a pretty healthy gain, right? I mean, in my opinion, that'd be a pretty healthy over-under for a multi-year return. And and only 1% said we'd even be below 3,800. Actually, it was a little less than 1%. And only 7% said we'd be between 3,800 and 4,100. So, John, that clearly, and I guess 14% were in the 4,100 to 4,400 range. So, it, paint, it paints a pretty optimistic picture. I think that uh, foots pretty well with what we're seeing in the rest of the market. But then, interestingly, from a different source, actually, um, Ed Borgato put up on his Twitter feed a poll that said a magical genie comes along and offers you a guaranteed after-tax 7% compound return for the next three years. So, 2022, 2023, 2024. But the trade-off is you must lock up. You can make no other investments during that three-year period. Would you take it? I know I, I voted yes, that I would, I would actually take that 7%, even though I think, I hope I can do slightly better than that. But I think that will potentially outperform the broader market by a couple of hundred basis points. So I said, sure, I think 7% would be enough to entice me to sign up for that. What about you guys? That's a bit harder. I'd say like take it in half. <laughs> of my book and then work on the rest of it. Uh, yeah, that's so why it's a that's why it's a tricky terrible trade-off. Answer, so but I that's a tricky trade-off. You have to lock up hundred percent of your investable assets for three years. You can't do anything else. That was the deal. Yeah, I would not lock up hundred percent for three years. No. Yeah. I agree. Well, it's tough. I I also wouldn't <laughs> but it's totally inconsistent with me thinking the market's gonna be lower. Uh, well not but, necessarily because then you could go then redeploy at lower prices, right? So that's the appeal. And that's why I would always turn something like that down in real life. But I think the point stands that expectations are are pretty darn high. And, and likewise, it, the implied probabilities that they seem to have here. So the same group back on the forecasting open was asked, what's going to be the highest market cap of a publicly traded US-based company on June 30th? So similar to the S&P 500 question. I had to look these numbers up because it was just so astounding. The, the top four candidates are Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon with other as an option, but literally not a single person cast a vote for other. And the numbers right now stand at Apple at 2.875 trillion, Microsoft at 2.485 trillion, and then Google and Amazon both a good bit below 2 trillion. So it really would take quite an earthquake to boost Google, you know, by almost 40% or to add another trillion to Amazon, a trillion plus to catch Apple, if if Apple just stood still, and so Apple is actually getting about sixty percent of the vote there, and Microsoft gets thirty nine percent of the vote. Google and Amazon get one percent each, and and that's truly kind of astounding. I, mean, I remember the episode when we talked, uh, I think it was earlier this year, about you know the the market cap leaders and what are the top ten and top twenty companies by market cap over long periods of time, and we all agree that you know the, the turnover is real, the turnover is high. Who's going to fall from grace over the next ten years? And we, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, who's going to come from nowhere? And we all kind of zeroed in on maybe a payments company, like if Stripe, you know, were to really grow, you could see something like that joining the ranks of the the top ten global companies or U.S. based companies by market cap. But what's going to unseat a company like Apple or Microsoft? And what are the implications if Apple or Microsoft do stumble and a trillion dollars of equity value just evaporates? Like it's it's pretty stunning, right? Yeah, it really is. I'm curious on the first question. Do you have an idea for context how the good judgment people skewed last year? Like, are they just no? You know? I wish I did, and and I should have given a caveat too. There's only a few dozen to a few hundred votes on each one of these questions, so this is truly more of a holiday parlor game than anything I'd take too seriously. When they run the actual forecasting tournaments from which the super forecasters are derived. Um, they're much more careful about having good representative sample sizes. And I think this, the teams are all made up of, I think, you know, from three to six individuals. And it's much more robust. This is really more of a straw poll kind of thing. And it, it, in a lot of ways, it actually kind of reminds me of that silly poll that's on the front page of the Value Investors Club, which never really seems to change by more than like, you know, five points in either direction, right? Where it says, are you finding an average amount of bargains? In the stock market, above average, below average, and it never really seems to move that much. I kind of wonder if the same thing is at issue here. Um, couple, couple more um, headline consumer price index in June of next year. My initial stab was about 3.8, 3.9%. That's pretty similar to where the crowd is at. Not a single person voted 
for anything between zero and 2%, 18% of the crowd voted two to 3%, 38 voted three to 4%, 32% voted four to 5%, and 12% voted over 5%, which is actually kind of where we are at this exact moment. So everybody's kind of expecting, or a lot of people are expecting a significant cool off, but nobody's expecting a cool off back to below 2% where we were, which I thought was pretty interesting as well. Um, let's see. Another one that kind of blew my mind, actually, in a, in a negative way, was somebody posed the topic of, will there be a complex coordinated terrorist attack, a CCTA, apparently that's a well-defined concept, in the United States by a foreign terrorist organization with at least five fatalities before the 1st of September next year? I said that's, you know, probably in any given year, a 1% to 2% probability at most. The crowd was at a full 5% which is pretty scary and pretty astounding. It makes me wonder if I'm too sanguine about things or if this crowd tends to view kind of nihilistically how it might play out. I mean, that was kind of disturbing given that that's not an every year or even every decade kind of occurrence. Uh, that was pretty disturbing. Uh, back to the financial realm, one more that I thought was pretty interesting. What would you guys say the odds are that we hit at least two and a quarter on the 10 year before or at the end, before the end of June next year. So by July 1st of 2022. So we're currently at what? 1.43, something like that today. What do you think the odds are that we jump all the way up to at least two and a quarter by next summer? I'd say generally pretty low, call it like a 10% chance. Okay. I'll say 20, but I, I don't really think it's a free market. I think uh, the probability would be a lot higher if, uh, if, if it was a free market. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we've just had the Fed announcement and it seemed to be pretty much a non-event, whatever people were expecting. I threw a stab based on a whole, I put more time into this than I probably should have. I came up with 18% and ironically and hilariously, the crowd was at 17%. And ironically, that's right in between the two numbers you guys just threw out there. So I guess everybody's kind of herded around that, which is kind of interesting. I wonder then if we're wrong and we should be widening the lens a little bit. There was actually another similar question about the closing yield on the 10-year treasury at the end of next year. So just over a year from now, the 31st of December, 2022, and not a single person predicted negative yields in the U.S., uh, only 6% of the crowd thought we'd even get below 1%, which to me seems like a whole lot. I put it as a 20% possibility. I mean, we were there in the pandemic. And as we're seeing right now with Omicron, I mean, surprises are still out there. Um, and, and to John's point, I mean, I don't think Fed policy has done a complete 180 to the Paul Volcker days in the last couple of weeks or months. So I, I don't know, going back below one seems like a very real possibility. And 6% seems crazy low as a probability. I had about 60% for 1% to 2%. That's exactly what the crowd had. But the crowd was at 33% in a range of 2 to 3%, and only 1%, 3 to 4%, which was really kind of surprising. And literally nobody forecasted a yield over 4%. And I agree, over 4% is very unlikely, but zero is not a probability. So um, what do you guys say? Does that strike you guys as kind of odd too? Well, I'd say the risk skews up, not down, on the 10-year, given where we sit and how inflation, more so than deflation right now, is the concern. So I don't know. It strikes me as somewhat fairly balanced in a way. Yeah, I, I think it's just striking to me that you have 93% of respondents said we're going to between be between 1% and 3%. That just seems too clustered to me. Fed's had pretty good control, but yeah. Yeah, no, they have, but that's what worries me, right? Like things like this can be controlled for so long until they can, right? It just seems tough. Yeah, yeah, but I would expect the skew to be more consistently up than than down in an environment like this. Yeah, no, fair enough. John, what about you? Yeah, I agree with Elliot. I think you know, given where inflation is, um, the Fed can even let the rate go uh, a bit higher. And it's still extremely stimulative because you still have negative real rates. So I don't really see why the Fed um, would want to 
you know, blow a lot of firepower to drive it um, much lower from here. I think it can it can go higher, and it's still uh, you know too low. Yeah, interesting. I, I certainly don't have any answers. I just find the the responses and the range of outcomes fascinating. It, these are two more that I came up with that were not included. So I'll, I'll tell you what I thought, and you guys can chime in. Uh, on the financial front, will the S will the market broadly defined by the S and P five hundred have a down year in any year over the next five? And you know, because it it seems hard to imagine, right? I mean, we just don't seem to have down years, let alone many consecutive down years, which used to be a real thing. Um, so I, I put the odds of a down year at any point over the next five years at eighty five percent. It just seems very unlikely that we're going to continue to dodge that bullet. And when you do the the math of computations and permutations, it's just not that hard to get to where, you know, you have a down year at some point over the next five years. Do you guys think that's too high? Bill, you're usually the cynic in this bunch, and I think you didn't go high enough. <laughs> really? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, in the next five years to have a down year? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, have had down years within the last five, uh, not by a lot, but it doesn't take a lot to be called down, right? Um so yeah, no, you know, I agree. I just think we've, I think in the popular mindset, people have entered into this realm where, you know, that's literally been like a certain sports oriented podcasting turned day trader, like stocks never go down. <laughs> and maybe they've finally realized over the past few months that stocks could, do go down. But uh, yeah, I mean, just the combination of unlimited, you know, fiscal and monetary stimulus combined with recovery from the pandemic and whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess. I wouldn't be totally, totally shocked if we have five consecutive up years from here, but it does seem really likely. So maybe I should have gone to 90 or 95%, but I don't know. Yeah. And one thing I think about is like, geez, from, you know, a lot of people do say we've gone straight up for the last decade, but from January, 2018 through May of 2020, we had gone sideways. That's like basically two and a half years. So we have long periods where not much happens. You can have, yeah, I mean, that's historically, that's what's so fascinating. I mean, you've had 10 to 15 year periods, you know, even post World War II, where the market's literally gone nowhere and with lots of volatility up and down in between and lots of gnashing of teeth. And it just seems like it, it relatively optimistic. And I'm not one of these people who thinks we've completely lost our moorings in the broader security markets, even though you've got little pockets of just total insanity. But I do think valuations reflect, you know, more good things than bad happening, which is normally the right attitude. It's just you're not starting from an artificially low point, right, where you could really bake in a reversion to the mean in the positive sense to boost your to boost those returns over the next few years. So it, it does seem like we're you know we're going to need things to continue to go right. And and kind of going back to that Twitter poll I mentioned earlier, like if I had to put a you know gun to my head or something and pick an over under on the compound return annually in the S&P 500 for the next five years, I don't think I could really go above four or 5% in nominal terms, right? I mean, I just, you know, could we continue at six or seven or eight? Sure. It's that is definitely possible, but that, that wouldn't be the middle of my distribution of guesses. Yeah. Well, Phil, I gave you a lower number on the S&P by June. So I guess, uh, <laughs> You know where I stand on that, but at the yeah, but same that's only time, about June, then you'd come roaring back in the second half. Of the yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I mean one one caveat I do have is that I agree with I agree with Ray Dalio that cash is trash, and so yeah. um, I don't believe the market uh, is going to have another you know multi year downturn. We're gonna have it's it's it it is highly valued right now which is why i gave you a lower number on the s&p and also just to put myself out there like an idiot um but i do believe that uh, you know holding cash is a losing proposition and you gotta put that somewhere if you're a long-term investor so that's that's really why i you know over mm. over the decade, i do believe that equities and real estate and pretty much everything other than cash, will um, go up. You're, you're definitely fighting a losing battle over a decade. I totally agree. You wouldn't want to hold a giant cash position for that long. And I do struggle to imagine the 
tidal change in mentality that it would take to get back to the bad old days where even people like Ben Graham were so scarred coming out of the depression that any bounce was a reason to sell basically for a while there, right? Or where you got to the cover of prominent business magazines declaring the death of equities because it's been you know, 10 plus years of just pure misery and inflation is running high. So you can get a decent return in bonds and that kind of stuff. It's just hard to imagine getting back to a world like that. But, you know, that's when I try to really stop and force myself to think about it because when something's been going on for a long time and you, you know a low probability but high impact event is out there, that's usually when you need to pay the most attention to it. Uh, and speaking of the, the last one. Well, know, could I, I just interject before we jump sure. to the last one? I also think yeah, it's please. important to think about the fact that, you know, saying there's going to be one down year within five doesn't mean you think there will be a down period over five years, right? Oh, no, I agree. So the market right. tends to move in these fits and starts. You know, we went nowhere from 2018 through most of 2020 in aggregate. And yet, you know, when you think about the, um, what's happened, you know, you then have a year where it's up 25%. So um, to average somewhere between seven and 10, you'll have years that are 25 and years that are zero or negative. And so that's just like the nature of the beast. Can't fight nature. I I totally agree. I think where I was shaking out on was I bet that if we could find a way to pull, you know, tens of thousands of people across all walks of life that would even have an opinion on it, given what they've seen the last two years and the number of people that have come into the markets in the last two years, where at least in the US, the equity markets have risen despite all number of just bad, horrendous things that you wouldn't have imagined at the beginning of that period. They say, sure, what else could happen from here that would be worse? Like stocks never go down, right? Like that would that would kind of be their their framework, right? Like I have a feeling if I'm at 85 or 90 percent and you guys are are there, maybe even a little higher. Like I bet the general population would be way, way, way below that. Just my guess. Yep. Anyway, last one, and uh, I'll turn it over to you, Elliot. But on a more hopeful note, do you guys think, or what are the what are the odds you'd assign that 2022 will be better than 2021 from a COVID perspective? So in this regard, I'm counting total global infections, which is obviously. A somewhat arbitrary benchmark and somewhat hard to measure, but it does it does really matter, right? Because you know we can measure this a lot of different ways, and it matters enormously depending on what country you live in and, and all that sort of stuff. But you know, if we're going to really put COVID nineteen in the rearview mirror, you have to make progress on a global basis, of course, as you're seeing from the continued rise of the the variants that that roll out. So. I put the odds that total infections will be lower in 2022 at about 80%, um, which I'm still debating. What do you guys think? Well, I'm going to say that that is like entirely the wrong question to ask when it's framed as better. Because I think, you know, if you truly believe this thing's going to be endemic and that we'll be better prepared to deal with it because people will have been vaccinated and, um, you know, maybe who, who the hell knows for sure, but if Omicron's a more mild strain, you know, better might very well mean way more people get it, but it's way more manageable. Yeah, um, so I don't really want to answer the question phrased as such because I truly believe if you think the COVID situation is going to be better, you also think there will be more cases. Yeah, that's fair, because you do need to burn through it at some point. But to your point, you could also burn through it by getting more people vaccinated and warding off at least a majority of the potential infection. So yeah, I guess- it's uh, showing I'll, that you know vaccination, the foremost effect, isn't necessarily- Oh, no, of course. Yeah, preventing you from de- getting it, right? It's no, just no, right. They're designed a more mild case. Severe, severe illness, for sure. That's the original use case, and that's what they've been- until now, hopefully continuing to prove out that that's what they're doing very well. So, so my yeah, inclination I, is, you know, we end up much better off as 2022 goes on, but it's about how we're able to deal with cases actually happening. And right. so there will be more cases, but we are better. <laughs> but I think the fact remains, I would imagine you'd agree that if we had, you know, let's say 100 total infections in 2021 and up until now, almost all of them were, or the majority of them were Delta, right? And then if 
Omicron spreads way more rapidly as it appears to do. And you had 400 cases in 2022, even with a lot less severity, that's just a lot more people getting sick, right? Which is not going to make it easy to, it's going to put a big strain on the healthcare system. It's going to make it difficult to get back to work and travel and all the things we want to do, even if it is far less severe than Delta, right? So I think the the, le- the absolute level of infection does still matter, even though I share your hope that this could burn out quickly as a relatively mild strain that transitions us to the endemic phase sooner rather than later. Yeah. And maybe my perspective's clouded because as I sit here in Connecticut right now, we have the highest rate of infection that we've had in this entire pandemic. Yeah, a lot of places do, yeah. And we're the worst in the country right now for much of the, you know, after the first wave, we've been amongst the best. Yeah. But the, the good side of that is that our, you know, hospitals, when we were at equivalent rates before were full and they are not now and it's very right. low. Which you'd hope, but it is still a burden, right? Like it still sucks for the the hospitals and the doctors and nurses to have to deal with it again. And like, this was just not... The amount of cancellation and closure notices that have been hitting my inbox in the last, uh, you know, couple of hours is kind of snowballing exponentially. Yeah, it's, it's a big strain on real people. It's a big strain on the economy and the healthcare system. And I just don't think most people were... I think a lot of people, myself included, were pretty hopeful, 80, 90% likely that Delta was going to be the last major variant wave. And it's just all been thrown out the window in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, it's it's ridiculous and perilous to say with any confidence that next year will be far better, which is why I'm not going to ever go above something like 80%. But you would hope that with the continued rollout of vaccines and certainly with the continued development of therapeutics to reduce the severity of the actual infections that are incurred that next year will be better no matter how you define it. So here's hoping. Agreed. Yeah. Better is just, you know, we're able to deal with it better. It seems, you know, yeah, we're going to have to, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. I was going to agree with you, Phil, on the probability. Uh, I was going to say 75 to 80%, but yeah, it's interesting whether, um, you know, more is better or less is better. I think, you know, getting through it is better. Yeah, exactly. So, however, however, you get over however that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I mean, I really don't. I've been kicking this around, and I think people are tired of it and exhausted. I, I totally understand that. It's just, you know, it's been it's been a long two years. That's for sure. Yeah, but certainly, government policies don't agree that more is better. I mean. Yeah, it no. seems anyway. Um, you know, we're we're at uh, peak infections in Switzerland right now, and they're doing more, right? More restrictions and so forth. So, yeah, but I think people are realizing that you know there's a there's a, a silver lining to this uh, new variant. So we'll see. Let's hope. Yeah, I mean, the last thing you'd want is for people to get overly negative or despondent or something. I mean, it's it sucks. We just all have to fight through it, right? It's disappointing, but, um, and it's tragic for a lot of people, right? I mean, there's going to continue to be lives lost and lives disrupted and it's just hard to think about. So, uh, I, I wish there was a way to be more blindly cheerful and optimistic, but you know, that's the, the world we've been dealt right now. And people, we all just have to kind of suffer through it for a while. All right. Over to you, Elliot. Yep. Sorry. On that glum note, we'll go over to Elliot. (laughs) All right. Well, that is in the theme of like what I was planning on talking about anyway, because, you know, 2021 was one of those years where it was full of ups and downs. Starts with, you know, the optimism of the uh, vaccine and perhaps an end to the pandemic within the year. You know, by May, it certainly felt like that was a distinct possibility. And, you know, within a couple uh, weeks from there, um, the Delta wave had begun and we are very much still contemplating when we will kind of hit an end game and what it will look like. So, you know, peaks and valleys and being our last podcast recording of the year, I thought it would be appropriate to visit and speak to some of the lessons that so far I've had as my uh, some of my big takeaways 
um, for the year. Um, and I'm hopeful you guys uh, will share some of yours as well. So here it goes. Um, one of the big ones for me, uh, this environment is far more dynamic than any I've ever experienced. And uh, even seasoned veterans I've spoken to said the same. So, you know, appreciate and respect and have situational awareness for the degree to which there's dynamism in the environment. And, you know, obviously you could, there's always the unexpected that's likely to happen, but be cognizant of whether it is a more dynamic or static environment. And it's very much dynamic, uh, remains still the case today. Um, number two would be, you know, the markets reacted to seemingly obvious things that in theory I would have thought were priced in. So simply because something is obvious, don't think it's not worth acting on in some way, shape, or form. Uh, don't ever think something's too obvious to work in one way or another. The next is one that I'm still not sure exactly how to respond to it. And it's one of the things I'll be reflecting on um, for more than just these next few weeks. Um, and it's related to the dynamism of the environment and situational awareness. But I've had from the beginning as an investor, a predisp predisposition toward inaction, but I'm contemplating whether it would be helpful to be a little more nimble, if only at the margin. Um, and I don't have an answer on that, but I think one of the lessons is at least think about that. Don't just say I have a predisposition toward inaction and, you know, let that be that. Um, still, you know, have a high threshold for action, but can be nimble within that. So it's something I'm going to be thinking about. Um, then next, you know, I've talked about simplification and the role that plays to narrow down to one KPI that really moves things. And I think this applies more, what I'm about to say applies more to new rather than old positions that I've been in for a while. But when that one KPI you think is most important doesn't do what you expect it to do, even if there are very rational reasons behind it, move to the side, don't suck your thumb for a minute and um, wait to see how it plays out and wait for your signals to actually align. Next, um, be very conscious of factors in the market because you might be less diverse than you think. And that's something that's been humbling uh, this year in a way. Um, you know, I, I, I knew my book had concentrated in certain factors and I was conscious about moving, you know, some portion to different areas, but still, you know, it's a very, uh, I think the nature of the markets change. And I do think it's important to be very attuned to the factors that you're exposed to. Next, um, when something in your gut is telling you to do something in an area you have a lot of experience, act on it, don't sleep on it because you might not have enough time. I think this is exactly where system one is primed to work. And I'd emphasize only in an area where you have a lot of experience, where you're acting very much within your uh, competence. Um, so believe and trust in system one. Um, next, uh, people are way more resilient than we ever think, um, than I ever thought possible, right? People are truly resilient. What we've gone through these last two years, you know, how many things have happened early in the pandemic, you know, very early in March, 2020, I was thinking it might look like a general strike insofar as the economy is concerned. So even in aggregate, like people and the systems we built, they're resilient. We respond to things. Things end up working. But there is a flip side to that also. Just because we're resilient doesn't mean things are easy or without challenges. So appreciate that. Talk to the people you love. Make sure you, know, you help them. Um, and in doing so, it'll help yourself. Uh, you know, these challenges affect us all in very much the same ways, uh, whether someone shows it or not. Um, next, you know, productivity has nothing to do with how much time you have. It's one of the really big things I've learned in the last year, two years, because early in the pandemic, I had much less time than I've had more recently as the kids have gone back to school. And I haven't felt like my productivity level was much different in the two distinct periods. It's entirely a function of focus and energy. So put yourself in a position to be focused 
and have energy, which includes taking some breaks and stepping away. And then the last that I've really marveled on is, you know, even in times of isolation, like whoever thought we'd go into lockdown state in our lifetimes for, you know, anything really. Uh, But even in isolation, you can feel very connected to the people around you, to your world. And some of that's entirely fueled. I mean, not some of that. That's fueled by technology, but it's truly incredible. And, you know, you could be alone without feeling lonely. And I think that's, that's pretty powerful. But that also doesn't mean you don't feel lonely in different ways. Like social connection is extremely important. And it's been incredible to, you know, get to see people after a long time without having done it. Um, and the emotive force behind that is, is really powerful. So harness it, treasure it, and, you know, remember what we've all uh, gone through. So, you know, I'm optimistic that 2022 is the year we round the corner to riff off of what we last uh, were speaking about in Phil's section. And, you know, I think uh, these are some of the lessons I've reflected on. I don't think I'm done making my list of lessons for the year, um, but I think, you know, the, the, these are the important ones I've been focused on uh, as the year's coming to close. How about you guys? Yeah, that's a pretty impressive list. I um, I share the optimism, by the way. I don't mean to bum people out. I hope my last <laughs> section wasn't too uh, depressing a note to end your particular week going to the end of the year. I am inherently always glass half full, and I think the world will continue to make progress. And a lot of the negative things that get drawn to the forefront right now are a lack of fo- or due to a lack of focus and attention to the to the real numbers and, you know, the real state of humanity and, and where things stand. So I think I share your sentiments there. I share your sentiments on pretty much everything you said there. I thought there was a, a lot of good stuff on that list. I made a list uh, of the big lessons I learned in 2021. In a lot of cases, it was just pounding in lessons that I've neglected in the past or things that I knew in the past, but just didn't appreciate. Uh, we, we've talked before about how in the past, you know, five or six years or so, I finally understood the, the lesson about not fooling yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And, and likewise, I feel the same way about a lot of the things that I learned and relearned this year. And I guess starting right at the top, it, it was right in January. It's that markets can do absolutely crazy things. If you had told me in advance what was going to happen with, with GameStop and AMC and the meme stocks that all went bananas, you know, look, it's really not unprecedented in a lot of ways. I mean, the way it unfolded was, of course, unprecedented because we didn't have things like Reddit and Robinhood before, but there's really nothing that unusual about it in the broader arc of history and in, in terms of people's behaviors in the markets. But it was still absolutely insane to watch that unfold. And the lesson we have to take away is that you just have to be careful that you're not leaning down, scooping things up and coming in front of an oncoming freight train and that you're risking getting killed for, you know, relatively small returns. I mean, the, the lessons to leverage and shorting and concentration and counterparty risk, uh, factor exposure, whatever the case may be, um, I think those lessons are absolutely worth remembering because, you, you know, you, you can imagine having a well-thought-out thesis and then watching something like this go against you and just watching your entire portfolio business get torched in the matter of a few days or a few weeks with something like this that would be uh, beyond infuriating, but it happens. And we all have to try to do as much as we can to avoid it. Uh, likewise, the importance of psychology and, and incentives and social influence. I think, again, it, it's just stunning when you see how powerful it is and you see it play out in real time. And I'm not just talking about meme stocks, I'm talking about everything. And, and and, and it ties in with another big lesson, which is just how unpredictable things are, right? I mean, you would have not, two years ago, you would have gotten a lot of strange looks if you predicted things like the COVID-19 pandemic and the January 6th riot at the United States Capitol and the political environment that we've gone through and the social unrest we've had and you know the, the fiscal response and the economic response. All the things that have happened were fundamentally unpredictable. And yet here we are, just like I was a minute ago, there's this human need to try to control that uncertainty and the human need to try to boil it all down into something you can wrap your arms around. And you just have to keep coming back to the lesson that almost all of the things that are going to matter are unpredictable. And, you know, it's just a fact of life and you just have to learn to deal with it. Um, and I guess my last big lesson and takeaway that I've learned is a, is a concept I've come to call otherwise, which is just this notion that it didn't have to be this way. Right? It could have ended up otherwise. Things could have happened differently. The ball could have bounced left instead of right. 
Um, history is not predetermined, right? Counterfactuals matter. It can always be a whole lot worse and it can always be a lot better too. I mean, it, it, this is not some sort of predetermined thing that, you know, oh, it's obvious that, you know, this price went to this level or this company had success or failure or this person got the job or got elected or there's all sorts of randomness, all sorts of things playing through a very complex interrelated system. And so I, I just keep trying to remind myself, and, you know, this year's a good example of it, you know, think through as broad a range of probabilities and scenarios as you possibly can, because it's the only possible defense you're ever going to have. John, what about you? Yeah, great lessons, guys. I think certainly the point on irrationality uh, stands. I think I felt that there's more irrationality out there than a rational person could even imagine. And so it's very dangerous if you try to get in front of that or bet against it, you could get really crushed uh, in the short term. <clears throat> and I recall that quote, I think it was Albert Einstein who got really worried when humanity invented nuclear weapons because it was basically the realization that our technology is so advanced, but we as human beings are not any more advanced than we were a thousand years ago in terms of um, you know, our psychology, let's say. And I feel a little bit like that with markets right now. There's so much accessibility uh, through apps. There's so much information out there, but there's really nothing has changed in terms of um, human psychology. And so you've just created ways that people can really hurt themselves more and mess up their lives much more easily than uh, in the past. Um, I also feel like many more investors than ever are playing the beauty contest. Um, that's probably just a function of where we are in the market cycle. But um, you see, you know, even among professional investors, it's not uncommon to have them explaining why they're doing something or basing their decisions, at least in part, on what they think the apes might like next. Self-proclaimed apes, by the way, this is not an insult. <laughs> they're actually people in the market who call themselves apes. You know, you take something like cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, I don't understand it. Uh, but when you look at things like Dogecoin, Doge's wife uh, has a value, apparently, the coin, I mean. <laughs> um, it's just proof that anything goes, at least for a while. And, um, you know, you think about crypto, yeah, it could amount to something, but it could also be completely worthless. I mean, all of it, you know, cryptocurrencies, blockchain-based things, I have not seen really people explain very well what the problem is that these things solve. Um, and so you have a lot of companies built on top of what could end up being a worthless um, house of cards. Um, I think we've also realized that regulators will not protect you. Uh, you're on your own. Uh, I think regulation is all about disclosure and not about preventing bad things from happening. I mean, I feel I almost feel like a company could literally, in its disclosure, say, we will rip you off and take your money and burn it. And that would be just fine with, uh, with the SEC. And a lot of folks wouldn't read it, and uh, that would be that. You know, so I think... Also, with, with the political elites, I think it's all about um, their own personal careers. Um, I don't think the Fed is really thinking about what's best for the long-term future of the dollar or the country. I think Nancy Pelosi cares more about her stock portfolio than about her constituents. One other thing personally for me, um, taking losses with no emotions and no pride. Uh, this, this used to be a problem for me in the past. It cost me a lot of money. Um, I, over the last year, I've really succeeded in, in taking losses without any emotion and just having the confidence that I can make money on average over time. And so taking a loss is not a problem. I would say, you know, just keeping in mind the saying, if it's too good to be true. Um, in other words, don't get greedy, especially at this point in the market cycle. And uh, 
you know, if I talk to folks who really have no business being in the market, but they think that somehow um, by by trading they can make a living and a good living and don't have to work, I mean, that's just complete nonsense. Um, I think ultimately invest in yourself, know more, think more. And for me, also uh, spending some time in solitude. I think I've spent more time in my own head than ever in 2021. And it's been great because you get non-consensus ideas, uh, you get creative ideas, you're not so influenced by by what everyone else is thinking. And uh, so I've just found it really helpful to just spend some time uh, disconnected and, uh, and, and thinking. So that's it for me. Wow, that's a great list. Yeah, really great stuff, guys. Thank you so much. And that's such an interesting point on solitude. I'm glad you said the part about disconnected because I feel like a lot of solitude has end up be, ended up being connected for some people and the disconnected part's huge. And Phil, I'm glad you said the word relearned when you started yours because I, that was just something I meant to emphasize with a couple of my lessons as well. And uh, that's the truth. Sometimes you have to learn something more than once to truly have it hammered home for you. Or yeah, like I'll read about it or hear about it and I'll know theoretically about it, but I just have to have it hammered in two or three times before it finally takes effect. And sometimes you have to learn it for yourself. You know, it's one thing for someone to tell you something or to read about something, another to actually, you know, do it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I, I, I agree. And I, one thing I wanted to ask John about your list, one of the things that stood out to me about the things you mentioned, or most of the things you mentioned pertaining to the external environment, and this gets back to something I guess we've talked about a few times, but how many of those issues do you think that you cited are sick or cyclical and come around every so often for whatever reason, right? This suspension of disbelief, this willingness to sell people you know, a bill of goods, the willingness to just think I'm going to stake everything on what could be a house of cards. You know, look, I tend to believe that politicians have always been feckless, power hungry individuals that don't really care about anything else. So I, and I, you know, like I said, in my uh, comments earlier, I mean, there's certainly been periods of time before that closely resemble the GameStop AMC and the apes and that whole phenomenon. So I, as shocking as it is to me at times to wake up and realize that people are doing things that I regard as just so irresponsible and crazy and irrational, you know, one, I'm prone to the same things. And two, it's like, this has been going on for so long that I wonder if this is just a passing phase for lack of a better word, or do you think this is different than that? Well, I want to hope that it's uh, cyclical, that it's a sign of just where we are in the market cycle. Um, but I, I do have the fear that it's more than just cyclical because of, you know, the tools that are out there, uh, the way people are consuming various apps. I mean, I just see it with my own kids, you know, this problem with social media addiction and there's just issues that I think are going to be with us for years and decades to come. And um you know, to the extent that today's kids that are so addicted to Instagram and, and all those things are going to be investing in the stock market, they're going to, you know, it's going to be really hard to have them take a rational long-term approach. Everything seems to be gamified these days. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to, we'll just have to wait and see. But I do think that something fundamental has changed um just given um how the penetration of the internet and and technology um has affected you know the way people think and spend their time interesting yeah i, I agree that's something that we're all going to have to contend with in various ways and i've reflected on one of the things that uh you know we used to very we we had big restrictions on screen times that our girls had before the pandemic, like there weren't even restrictions. It was just not habitual to have screens in front of them that regularly. But then early on when we had these stay homes and my wife and I both were trying to get work done, you know, one way to do it is to turn on the screens and let them be distracted for a little bit. 
And once you do that, there's no going back. And it's one of those things that you lament, but you're like, how was there any other way? And how do you reverse that now? <laughs> um, yeah. We're trying our best. Part of it is to get activities going again. And that's one of those things that, you know, has really uh, been very uplifting, um, seeing them engage in, in some of the activities they did, like ice skating starting again, you know. But it's, I think it's a challenge a lot of people are going to have. A lot of, I'd say, unhealthy habits uh, have emerged from the conditions of the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, we've, we've been, I've certainly been struggling personally. We've been struggling with the same issues. I, I just try to keep the perspective, I guess, that every era, every age has its own set of challenges and struggles. And I agree, John, I, mean, I think it's one of the things that is genuinely scary and you can get into all sorts of debates about the future of humanity and the singularity if we're all in a big giant simulation or whatever but it is interesting when people start outrunning their own cognitive abilities with their physical or or virtual tools even i mean to your point about trading and information availability and the psychological ramifications of that i mean it's not that much different than you know, the, the leaps and bounds progress we made progress is the wrong word, but the advancements in military technology of the last century, right? I mean, our ability to kill people on a mass scale has gone straight up for, you know, 150 years or something. And that has scary implications. And likewise, I think the, the rise of certain technologies that are prevalent today have negative implications. But again, I still think people don't change that quickly. And I think at the bottom of it, there's still reason for optimism with a whole lot of sobering moments along the way. Yeah, there's definitely reason for optimism. I think we have to end it on an optimistic note. Um, and I'm sure we'll explore uh, a lot of these topics more uh, in the future. Elliot, last words? Yeah, I mean, in the, in the optimistic note, I mean, I truly believe that when we can say, and I don't know how it happens, that the pandemic's behind us, it's going to become the roaring 20s of sorts, not in the financial sense, but in the like live life and don't, don't expect there to be second chances on anything, you know, like go get it. And I, I, I get this sense from my peers. And, you know, I think uh, that that was one of the experiences in, in of the summer of May through the summer when things were definitely looking better. So I think, uh, you know, that was a preview of what's to come more so than anything else. So as we sit here in winter and COVID numbers getting worse, it's easier to reflect on, on, on some of the challenges than to look forward to what I truly think is on the other side of this. For sure. Well, here's to a roaring 2021. <laughs> let's see. Let's see what happens. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Guys, uh, it's been so much fun uh, hosting this with both of you this year. We're going to reconvene in January, and I just want to thank uh, all of our loyal listeners for making this part of your uh, week. Uh, we are truly honored uh, that you take the time uh, to listen to the three of us share our thoughts. Thank you, and take care for now. Happy holidays. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.